0: I want books that are real and aren't just parroting what other people have said. As writer, the first idea we come out with is oftentimes an echo of not something from our lives, but something that we've read or read. Mm-hmm. Not really your own feeling. While you can't necessarily identify all the time which ideas are received and which are personal, when one is personal... You really know it. Like it really comes through. Is that something that is true and hasn't been said before? But not because the author found some uniquely poetic metaphor for saying it. They just said it in their way. What I'm looking for is for writers to really use their imaginations and to push the boundaries of what they're doing. Because we all start out echoing the things that we love. And I think that YA and middle grade are genres that delight in repeating tropes mm-hmm. in a cool and fun way. But as a result, we can fall into really common habits without adding our own perspective.
1: Thank you so much for joining LitMatch today. I am absolutely thrilled to welcome this amazing literary agent that we are about to have on the show. He has accomplished so much in his career and he is a wonderful teacher and is constantly generous with his information and insight that he shares on his social platforms and with his interns and everything that goes into the relationships that he builds within his business as being a literary agent and with his clients. John Kuzik is the Senior Vice President and Literary Agent at Folio Literary Management. John's client list is wildly impressive, including bestsellers like Julie Murphy's Stumplin and Laura Sebastian's Ash Princess. John seeks unique voices in fiction for young people and stories that move readers, and he is also an author and brings a creative and commercial sensibility to the agenting role. John is an editorial agent who works closely with his clients, whether it's developing a debut project or helping a seasoned author achieve the breakout novel. John John's always to match authors with their dream editor, secure the best deals possible, and grow an author's readership over a long career, just like we're hoping this podcast can match you with a dream agent. And maybe John is that dream agent for you. So thank you so much, John, for joining me today. I'm just thrilled to have you.
0: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for
1: having me on. Absolutely. John, before we get into the interview, would you tell us about what brought you to your career as a literary agent and anything in that field of your career in general.
0: Absolutely. I got my start in publishing pretty soon out of college. I knew I wanted to New York and and to investigate a couple of different potential industries after school and and publishing was one of them. The road in is pretty difficult and winding for most people and it was for me too. My initial rounds of interviews definitely didn't yield anything on the editorial side, which is what I thought I wanted to do at the time. I didn't know what a literary agent was or what they did. That just wasn't something that was in my field of vision at the time. But as it happened, I answered an ad and Craig Craigslist for a personal assistant to a literary agent. And that job was very temple wear's product. It was like walking this huge dog down the streets of New York, with holding the coffee cups in one hand and the laundry in the other, the phone in my ear, and whatnot. And it was a wild experience being someone's assistant. But that agent, Scott Tremell, very graciously trained me in a lot of different aspects of the business. While working for him, I realized though that was sort of a job I'd fallen into. It was kiss that because. At the time, most of my focus has been in the the kid-lit space, so books for teens and and younger. And I realized working with Scott that that was a great place for me, that it was full of people who were really passionate about what they were doing, but also that being on the agenting side was really right for me, which was not something I expected. But You mentioned I'm a writer, I was a real wallflower growing up. And so this being an agent was almost like a job that would force me to be more extroverted. I thought uh, it would force me to be more of an advocate for myself and others. It all came true. It did force me to do those things. But it wasn't long before I started representing my own clients with Scott and sort of moved on from there. That was definitely chapter one in the story.
1: That's great. I've always thought that mentorship is so important. And that's something that I really love about the publishing industry in general. There's the opportunities for strong mentorships to be building your own client list while working as literary assistant, that's a really cool and unique opportunity. How are your feelings when you first started that?
0: The first time I had a client that I worked with, what was happening was um Scott had an author that he had been working on again off
1: again with for a long time.
0: And this author sent Scott a brand new project. Why YA novel, and I read it my boss, which was my job at the time, among other things, and I said, hey, I'm really enjoying this. And I don't remember if it was my idea or Scott's, but they like, okay, maybe that first one that I tackle. I worked on that book and I sent it out on my birthday to a small publisher called Lux Books, who did a great job with it. And it was the kickoff deal for me. But I didn't sell another book for three years because it's a very interesting thing to do and to build momentum and to get your name out there. The distance between deal one and deal two is three years. This is between deal two and deal three was maybe three months. And it starts to get telescope as time goes on, you get more experience. But that feeling, I think what really excited me about it was knowing that There was no one closer to the writer than me as the agent. My job was to advocate for them. And that gives you a great sense of ownership over the work, a sense of closeness to to the art. You don't get paid as the agent unless the author gets paid in almost all scenarios. I remember in those early days going to a meeting at a publisher Mm -hmm. back when we met in buildings and whatnot and seeing posters for their biggest hit on the wall, thinking that must be so cool to work here. And to be affiliated with that property. But then I thought to myself, but that author's agent, like, they're really the one in the room. I want to have intimate connection to the art and to the author. Everyone else kind of a couple of more steps from it. So that also contributed to my feeling in those early days that agenting is where I wanted to be in my career. There were definitely a million less positive things <laughs> I'd say about the struggle to, to get into agenting but those are positive things that really drew me into
1: it. That's really interesting. I love what you're saying there because you've said the word advocate a couple times and I do think that is such a huge part of being a literary agent is being being the advocate for an author. How do you think that the agent's role differs then from the editor that you would sell the story to? Most all agents
0: these days, particularly the ones working with fiction, are probably going to describe themselves editorial agents or do some degree of editorial creative work before a project goes out on submission. The main reason for that is the level of competition. The number of projects that are out there that are on editors' desks are just so high that you really want to make sure that your submission isn't going out with any obvious flaws or problems or anything left to the imagination. You know, I think in in days gone by, an editor could take something that was much more rough and buy it on the back of their acumen and expertise. And I think these days, what is much more common is an editor is taking a project to a team that includes their colleagues, their boss, as well as a sales and marketing associate probably. They really need to make that project something that anyone can pick up, start reading it immediately, like, get it, appreciate it, get invested in it. That's kind of the level that things need to be at. That doesn't mean that a project needs to be ready for the final bookshelf when we go out on submission. What the agent does editorially, what the editor does editorially. I often compare it to the difference between the ER and brain surgery. The book comes into my office and I'm just trying to make sure it's not bleeding free. There's no major problems It's a functional book. The pacing is where it should be that the character arc makes sense, the teaser crops. When I send it out to an editor, once they buy the book, they're much more likely to go in and really start to pull up more words. bigger and deeper questions, take what is now functional as a book and make it not only functional, but really rich and deep and just much more than what we're able to bring it to pre-submission. Mm-hmm. And I did once have an editor ask me, when do I know if something is ready to go out? I think it's a case-by-case basis, but a big factor is how long is the author willing to spin their wheel? I've worked with agents who, in my opinion, edited ad infinita. Nothing is ever perfect, so you need to know when to pull the trigger. By the same token, you are equally in trouble if you go out with something like, this is not great, but it's really on trend. And so that's not going to work and isn't a good strategy for anybody.
1: When writers are querying And you're trying to decide, is this one that I can work on with editing versus one that I think needs something like an R&R? What's the line that you're looking for?
0: This is actually a big thing that I'm always talking about. Learning the difference between a fixable manuscript and a manuscript by a writer who just isn't ready for an agent yet. I think fixable items tended to be plot level stuff. So if the ending doesn't quite work. Or if a big character moment or a scene is quite landing, those kinds of changes are easy enough to spot and (laughs) make. Stuff that is more difficult to change at that level as an agent is the line level writing, what is sometimes referred to. Frequently, I think when we're talking about someone's voice, we are referring to consciously or not their word by word choice, Mm their indicators of their sentences, their syntax, the diction that they choose. That's their voice. That's something that's so baked into the DNA of a book that if something is problematic or not working there that's not to say that the author can't change it but it's beyond the scope of a revision in my experience a lot of times i might get a query for let's say a middle grade and all so target (laughs) audience is 8 to 12 years old and the concept is great it's got a really really good book something very pictureable and that i think would be very popular but in reading it paragraph to paragraph just doesn't sound Right. What sounds to a common problem, I'll sometimes see is that it sounds very retrospective. A lot of people are too young now to remember the show The Wander Years, but, you know, it was narrated by this older person looking back on their childhood. You'll see that sometimes in a Great people voice. You can feel it's an adult looking back on their childhood rather than a child speaking from their present lived experience. That problem, I can tell an author, go fix it. Mm-hmm. But that's on a like moment to moment basis. That's not something that's very easy to go in and just shift around or make a right. clear adjustment to. That's someone who needs to spend more time just writing. And I definitely can't solve it in the like three to six month window that effectively have to take something on, edit it and submit.
1: If that was the issue, like you loved the story that someone had queried you and it was this, we'll say middle grade, that was sounding like the adult looking back versus the middle grade Protagonist experiencing their experiences is that something that if you loved the story enough you'd probably write an R&R and then see if they come back to you with it or would you pass on it it
0: really depends I'm not often one for an R&R a couple of reasons for that I, I think that it opens up a lot of complicated doors in terms of timing for that person's query are they sending that R&R just to me it might imply a greater degree of enthusiasm or commitment than I have for the book if I'm suggesting an r What I want to avoid in that moment is someone coming to me and saying like, hey, this is me. Do you want to rep me? And I'm like, no, but if you were just different in these three ways, maybe I'd and then going out and coming back and be like, I changed myself in those three ways. Do you want to be with me now? And it's like, no, I still don't. And, and it was kind of wrong of me to say anything <laughs> to lead you in that direction. If that's not something I was prepared to do. I also hate it, frankly, when editors ask for r rs from my authors. And like, again, it's just so easy to say, yeah, do this differently. And I'll think about it again. It's just not enough of a commitment. So much commitment on the writer's part, but circumstances in which I would do an R&R Maybe something more akin to, hey, I'm going to say no, but I'm going to give you this feedback. And if you end up doing a big revision and going out with it again, come back to me. and I'll be interested to take another look. That way I'm not saying you're doing enough, but I'm also not asking the author to make any commitment or give me any kind of exclusivity either. The circumstances in which I would do that are, like you say. The concept is great. Like this is a really cool story. It's very, very difficult to stumble upon a great pitch. I think most things in writing can be learned or developed or whatnot. If you have a great idea and if something is not quite right about it, again, depends on how good it is, there might be something in me that's like, don't let that go, really smart. In my opinion, here's what is, what you could try differently. Sometimes I might give that kind of feedback if the problem in the book is something that's very easy for me to articulate. If I, it's a time investment question for me because I'm, I'm reading submissions and queries in my own time. My job is to service my clients not to read queries. So I might only have the time to respond very generally, usually. But if there's something very specific like saying, hey, I think that this adult point of view character chapter really makes this impossible for YA. I'll say so. And if I really like the rest of it, I say, hey, listen, instead of doing a different version of this book that's just about this main character, this kid character. I think that's an advantage of look at it. And I'll sort of do it in that more informal capacity, you know?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, that makes sense. I do want to get into your manuscript wish list, so we'll get into that in just a second. Before we do that, a little bit more on this and how you're identifying when you connect with those things that you don't really edit with, with the voice, the style, things like that in your current client list, what are some of the special sauce elements of the stories that you're representing?
0: Recently, I signed on a book. It's called Gorgeous, and Faces. That's by a debut author named Lady Chang. We started working together last summer when I read her submission. So why did it jump out to me? First of all, on a conceptual level, I just loved it. So the basic pitch is it's about these two girls who enter a reality show competition to be in a Asian girl band, as it's described in the book. And it's not televised, but it's kind of like a recruiting camp. As they're at the camp, they start haunted by a ghost, by someone from their past who that they were involved in in a certain way. And what I loved about it, first of all, is combining ideas from different genres. You could have the totally contemporary realistic rom-com version of that story, where we're going to the training camp and... We're falling in love, maybe it's a queer rom-com story because it's an all-girl, you know, arm or whatever. That on its own would have been really interesting to me. But in this case it brought in this horror, which I can say with confidence is very much on a trend. I think that publishers are looking to explore horror as a genre in the similar way that they've explored and really exploited fantasy in the past few years. These things together were very appealing to me as a concept. So that's at that level, I'm requesting the manuscript. Then on the line-to-line writing, the simplest thing I can say is that I just found myself. invested. the same way when you're reading a book, if you're really digging it. I just loved the characters and was really interested in what was going to happen to them. I think one of Linda's tremendous strengths as a writer, in addition to being able to just scare the ever-loving daylights out of you, is that her pacing is really great. There's a lot of backstory that is important that comes in very slowly and is kind of trickled in like a mystery. The journey from this girl deciding to kind of leave behind her life and go enter into this experience is very systematically plotted out from a character point of view. You see a lot of stories that are about Character A going into some new environment, whether it's moving to a new town, participating in the Hunger Games, mm-hmm. whatever, they go out to some place. And it can be a tricky task to get them there in a way that feels organic, but not too slow, you know? And Linda really pulled that off. I felt like we weren't rushing to get to the fun part. By the same token, I always felt every chapter that there was a reason to be here, that I was getting more invested and in, interested. Attention mm-hmm. was growing even before yeah. we even got to the. Um, hardcore spooky stuff. So all these things factoring together are like adding up in my head as I am reading this manuscript. Mm-hmm. And probably by about a third to a half of the way through, I'm at the point where this book has to convince me not to offer on. I've kind of made my decision. I'm really loving what's here. About halfway through the book, if something goes off the rails, usually in a way that is also, we talk about plot problems, right? Or, Mm -hmm. you know, this character decision doesn't quite land. So if that stuff happens in the back half, we can fix it. It's less of a disaster, you know? So I'm, I'm thinking these things all already as I'm preparing to ask Linda if she wants to hop on the phone and, and, you know, make an offer in that Mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the thought process that I'm going through. And that's happening both as I'm reading the query, you know, deciding to request the manuscript. And then over the course of reading the book, I'm becoming more or less invested in a particular query or submission as you go. Like, Hey, this is really working for me. There will inevitably be a moment where I find the first like thing I want to make a note on, like, "Mm, this exchange doesn't feel really realistic. And I'll make a note in the margin for later. That's kind of what the process looked like. And she's a great example because that came together. We went out on submission. I had a very popular response, sold very well. We're going to get to announce it soon. That was very exciting.
1: That's wonderful. Thank you for that example. When you get a manuscript, is it pretty easy for you to know when you do not want to represent it?
0: That could be instantaneous and most often is. I mean, I think I would say, let's work backwards. Like, what point am I reading something that I've requested and I'm cooking along with it and it starts to fall apart for me? Mm -hmm. I would say, you know, around the 30 page mark. So, you know, you set me your full and I'm getting into new chapters that I didn't see in your sample. Mm-hmm. around there is when you'll start to feel like is this keeping me engrossed Is it easy for me to put this down and go work on other stuff and then forget about it for a few days like, oh yeah I was really liking that book what happened like that happened a lot. Where I'm like hey that was I thought that was great like I just lost interest what's the story that's often because the story had come together in a way that was super intriguing so the promise of the opening if you want to call it that didn't really pay off. So it's usually between that 15 pages that might be in the query sample up to say page 50 that I'll start to feel if like this is keeping me invested, surprising me in new ways, really mobilizing my emotions, or this is not quite there. And a lot of times that is the true reason that either myself or an editor is rejecting something is I just don't think a publisher is going to make a lot of money. with. It. And oftentimes that's not because of something that's is doing wrong it's just that it didn't quite you know pull off something spectacular enough to be at that level
1: one of the things that really drew me to you is because you had this great tweet that gave 10 pieces of advice for writers for aspiring authors And one of them, point number five, was about how writing is a business. I find that writers are in it for the creative writing, but then they sometimes forget that this is a business, right? This is becoming a business mindset and helping writers to understand the difference between writing and publishing as a business. Can you deep to that a little bit?
0: Sure. I think this is one of those things where the moment any of us hears it out loud, it's very easy to to forget. And, And it is this, is that a publishing deal, a book deal or even representation with an agent is not a reward for hard work. And mm-hmm. it's not an acknowledgement that you are of a certain caliber and you're correct, so though both of those things are true. What it is, is someone thinks they can make money by selling or licensing your intellectual property, which in this case, is a manuscript is a story is a book. Now, the people you work with in this process can be lifelong friends. And it's a very personal business. Like I said, I stepped around in children's publishing because no one is there simply because they want to retire early. I think because writing is such a vocation, we can often forget that public acknowledgments of it are on a completely different channel and are operating by a completely different criteria. I don't know where we should seek to find our writerly validation, but I remember that's all a book deal is, is a sign of, of commercial liability. And what is commercially viable changes radically to year, changes radically market to market. If you happen to be writing in the young adult sphere, the genre restrictions of the young adult market are massive, very mm-hmm. limited in a lot of ways. Now, high think those limitations create fantastic stories and fantastic art, but they are restrictions. I think that's something to be aware of as you're trying to move something to a particular mark i'll say and i say this with love with the smile on my face when authors come to me and they say oh this is the book of my heart it's my least favorite thread in the english language because there's always going to be another book of your heart you know what i mean i oftentimes feel like we as writers i'll speak for myself uses the phrase the book of my heart as a request to get a pass on any bits of this that might like, not really work as a commercial property right um and it's always that rundown i find it equally impossible to sell projects that are written cynically where there is no personal passion behind it we're just gonna beep boop analyze the data and the book's gonna come out that doesn't work either you know there has to be this special alchemy of a genuine personal passion on the one hand and a very clear understanding of the business and the market on the other
1: the blend between passion and business is super important in order for an author to really find success and for there to be a successful business relationship, it sounds like.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: You spoke to restrictions for specifically children's books. Can you speak to those restrictions more?
0: When I'm talking about restrictions, just a a moment ago in the the YA space, what I would say is that whether or not YA fans always realize it consciously, there are certain genre expectations we have when we pick up a YA book over and beyond a book about the teenage Mm-hmm. So the example I always use is Catcher in the Rye, which people love to hate on and for understandable reasons. I always say that that book would not be published in the YA today. The reason is that although it's about a teenager and, and that teenager's experience, we are meant to be reading Holden as a part of the book. We're analyzing him. We're thinking about his choices. He's part of the environment that we are experiencing as a reader. YA in a lot of ways isn't Typically set up that way. Oftentimes, what is instead the case is that we are the main character. We are Cat. There is very little critical distance. Hunger Games is maybe not the best example, but oftentimes there's much less critical distance between us and the main character, and YA, than there is in adult fiction. Adults are interested in reading about people that they despise way more than teens are. Adults are like, mm, I read this book about this guy that I me and he was nasty, and I would not want to be anything like him. And it's just a book about why are people like that? That is the antithetical to the YA experience. The YA experience. Yeah. I read this book that reminded me it's okay to be me in this world that is hostile. That here's my identity, myself is a I think that's what YA reminds our readers. So, because of that, there are many genre expectations that come along with that. A sure. lot of YA. Themes are about finding that singular identity amid a complex world that's maybe not really set up for your growth. That could be a post-apocalyptic novel. That could just be a contemporary realistic novel.
1: Well, you mentioned that maybe Hunger Games isn't the best example. And I'm always thinking Hunger Games is always a great example. I think, you
0: know, the reason why I paused there and I'll tell you why is because uh, I think that the Hunger Games really is operating at a level of nuance that you don't always see in its competitors. And I think that the way that she gifted us with our brilliance yeah. was really something special. And that's one of the reasons that book has really leapt into the
1: public. Oh, yeah. I think that will be a timeless story. It was interesting because I get what you're saying in the sense that we need to really connect with On one of your profiles that I came across at some point. You said something, give me books that make me feel like Ah, I felt that. This is a great segue into what's on your manuscript wish list. What is on your manuscript wish list? And how are they getting you to that point of you're either crying, you're laughing, or just ah, yes, I have felt that. Yeah. So
0: there was a Abakam quote that I absolutely loved. And I'm going to butcher it, but he basically said something along the lines of the work of literature means nothing to society and everything to the individual. I think we could talk for an hour just about that idea. I do think that that is really important that in a lot of ways, reading a book is more akin to listening to the radio than it is going into a movie theater or a stage theater and seeing a show because you're alone with the art. I think that experience of having someone whisper into your brain and reveal this intimate detail about how they see the world or something that happened to them and whatnot, it's this secret signal that. There's a human being out there just like you, you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? That the lights are on in someone else the same way they're on with you. And maybe you agree, maybe you don't, but but you're resonating. It's there. There's someone else here with me, which I think is such a powerful existential experience.
1: That's the word I want, Um, existential. That's what I was thinking. It's so true. Yeah, it it
0: is. I want books that are real and aren't just parroting what other people have. Then, as writer, the first idea we come out with is oftentimes an echo of not something from our lives, but something that we've read or read. Mm -hmm. Not really your own feeling. While you can't necessarily identify all the time which ideas are received and which are personal, when one is personal, you really know it. Like, it really comes through, is that something that is true and hasn't been said before? But not because the author found some uniquely poetic metaphor for saying it. They just set it in their way. What I'm looking for is for writers to really use their imaginations and to push the boundaries of what they're doing, because we all start out echoing the things that we love. And I think that YA and middle grade are genres that delight in repeating tropes in mm-hmm. a cool and fun way, mm-hmm. but as a result, we can fall into really common habits without adding our own perspective. Mm -hmm. like for instance there's a reason i can't tell you exactly what it is but there's a reason why every year i receive hundreds of queries that are about a person being forced against their will to move to a small town i don't know why but people are stuck on that idea and i get it it's not a judgment if that's the idea but know that that's something that we see a lot right and push your thing further does this character need to meet this town at the same time as the reader or Could this character have a long history? Could this character have legends and anecdotes and memories and losses all built within this space? That to Mm -hmm. me is much more exciting as a reader Mm -hmm. than I'm being forced to go live with my uncle and then a few boys there. You know what I mean? Right, Right. So I think as an agent, we are particularly sensitive to this way of thinking because. We see so many queer. So the emphasis on originality is probably over the top for me as a reader because I'm engaged. So that's on the very specific. Let's get more broadly into what my manuscript wish list is. I am very much on the lookout for books in the middle grade space, the YA space, and what I'm going to call the crossover space. I would say that those are novels, probably contemporary realistic, maybe with a bit of romance or with a bit of genre stuff, so sci-fi or fantasy but accessible to a broad readership and probably targeted to a readership that's like young 20s, early 30s. Mm-hmm. What that might mean is probably not very high fantasy. If you're doing fantasy, probably not horror about people in their 50s. If it's something sort of spooky and fun about someone in their 20s or a rom-com about someone in their 20s, that's what I mean by the kind of crossover. In all markets, i really, i love contemporary realistic, Very character-driven stuff is wonderful for me. I really am drawn to very proactive protagonists. I think that is a subjective note, so it's something I I make a lot. Oftentimes I see a project come in where the neighbor is the quirky character, the background is the wild red man who has the crazy ideas. Give me that main character. That's just me, but I really like that. I would also say for sci-fi, terrestrial sci-fi, which is a phrase that I only heard used for the first time the other day, I'm surprised to admit. Just science fiction that isn't space-bound space opera stuff for me personally at the moment, which is. Ironic because I write space-bound stuff in middle grade. That's, for me, what I'm looking for in those genres. I do really like fantasy. I'm not actively seeking what I'll call sword and sandal fantasy right now, which is, above my head, leading the revolution, wars between kings and kingdoms kind of stuff is not what I'm looking for right now. I think that the book I was describing earlier in our talk, Linda's book, that had this big horror influence and whatnot, I'm more drawn towards those genre mashups. Kind of Game of Thrones or Lord of the
1: Rings. Sure. Yeah. That's great. That's a really specific and great list. Thank you for digging into that for us. As an author yourself, why do you think that makes you have a special skill that some agents who don't write might ha- not have?
0: No, so I think what I get out of being an author myself and how that translates into my agents' work is, is it? one is on the editorial side. I'm deep in the craft of writing stories, not just from top down as the outsider looking in, but what is it like to do this when the page is blank and you're kind of building from the ground up? I'll give you a good example of a cool trick that I can do that I think maybe non-writer agents might not be able to do. I was talking to an author a while back. This was a revised recently. And great voice, middle grade, coming of age, funny, true, nothing happens in the book. I gave the author an R&R. This was a few years ago, but I gave mm-hmm. her an R&R and I said, I said, I love your writing. I think you got it. You got that voice thing, which I can't teach. But I'm telling you right now, there's not enough tension and conflict in your story. And she got back to me, she said something very interesting, which was what after to do that R R. As a matter of fact, this is a note I've gotten multiple times before and I've never really been able to fix it. And I thought about that and we sort of talked for a little bit and I realized in this case, why is this author not able to make this change? He knows that's what it means. What is the stumbling block? And talking to her, I said that you like your characters too much. You love them so much that you don't want anything bad to happen to them, A and B because you're a very precise and sophisticated writer, you don't want anything to happen in your story that feels unrealistic, mm-hmm. which basically is plot. Like, what plot is unrealistic? Because that's the difference between a story world and the real world. Mm-hmm. The moment I said that thing about her not wanting to hurt her own characters, she was like, oh my God, I got it. And she could wrap her head around it and she was able to do it and work together. We sold her from Scholastic. So I think that. Knowing what it's like to be on the writing and why authors do the things that they do, for lack of a better term, occur within the manuscript. Like what caused that? And how can we deliver our editorial feedback in a way that causes the author's mind and the doors therein to pop open in a million different ways? It's so easy to get feedback. And this is something I know from experience as a writer and just shut down you're just yeah. overwhelmed and it's something you don't believe that it's true you're just like i don't know what to do with it it's so overwhelming i think one of the things i work on with my interns a lot is how do you phrase things and how do you what order do you talk about things so that you're really kind of creating this fertile ground for the author to jump in with their own imagination and thoughts
1: i also love how much you brought up your interns and how hands-on you are with your interns that's wonderful. It goes back to that whole mentorship. And not only are you being this amazing agent in this world, but you are passing on the baton to help other people learn and grow and do their own thing with it. That's awesome.
0: You're making me think as we talk because that's true. I, I bring up my interns. I think it's because you learn as you teach. I was able to probably articulate these things for the first time when an intern was like, why are we doing this? Why does this work this way? And you have to think because this is the other thing too, when we're passing on projects, even if we're not the kind of agent who got feedback or what have you, it's really important for you to be able to articulate to yourself why something isn't working or else you're not going to be able to fix them when it's time to. And that's an important part of it too.
1: That's wonderful. Again, like I just love it. I can see the teacher through all our conversation. I can absolutely see the teacher in you and helping to learn as you teach, you're also teaching others as you teach. That's great. There's so much, you have so much to say, you have so much wisdom and I feel like I could talk to you for hours and I wish I could talk to you for hours, but I do know the literary agents are also busy. So I want to go to our final three at the end of every podcast. I'd like to do a lightning three. And basically what I'll do here is I'll ask you three questions that you can answer in one sentence or less, meaning one sentence or one word, whatever it's going to be, but no pressure. My first question for you is what is one piece of advice that you could give writers before their first book comes out? If there's one piece, when you're going out submission, it's ready, the publishing date is set. It hasn't released yet though. What is that piece of advice that you give those writers before it's released?
0: There is a lot of chatter and excitement and run up leading up to your publishing day because your agent, your editor, and your publishing house are all focused on you because it's your time, it's your launch day. In the week after, in the weeks after, some of that energy is going to be pulled away because they're now focusing on solidness, release day. Just be prepared for that emotionally. It can be a bit of a jolt because you're just so in this ecstatic state of my book is coming out and all of a sudden it can sort of be like crickets. It doesn't mean that things start not going well or that the book isn't selling. It's just, you go from maybe hearing from your publisher every day to once a week or, or whatnot. It's a normal part of the process, but it can be a bit of an emotional blow. So that's one thing that I don't hear mentioned a lot, something sure. to be aware of as your, your first books come out. That's
1: great. Awareness, when you have the information, then you can respond to it better, right? Sounds great. Yeah. Right. We've talked about the blend between passion and business. And I'm wondering how you help your clients find that balance.
0: Really good question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay. Of the things that you are most passionate about as a writer, some of them are going to be easier to have a success with than others. And I think with the right guidance and with the right agent, you can direct your creative process in those directions. Semicolon. you should be able to write things you're passionate about to be a published author. And I think ultimately you can't do it without that passion. Mm -hmm. You want to be mindful that these are two distinct things, but they will dovetail in the life of a truly successful author. So you you do need both.
1: Great, wonderful answer. And for my third question, you represent a lot of graphic novels, middle grade novels, young adult novels. And I would love to hear why you think those stories are so important.
0: The systemic problems that we have in our society are ones that I think can ever really be solved by a law. If the person who's responsible for following that law or writing that law doesn't kind of have their own compass set correctly. And the only way to do that is when you're young. Without any kind of moralizing or didacticism, I think that what Kidlet provides is a space for young people to grow their own sense of themselves and their role in their community and their role in the world. And if you give someone the opportunity to do that in a healthy and expansive way, they're most likely going to grow up to be the sort of person who makes just laws and follows those justly. It's nothing short of that. I think it's that gets right at the core where you can do... The most good and if you're going to have to live in a post-capitalist society where you need to work for the man to put a roof over your head are yeah. uh, the best way to do that is in a business uh, whose output you can really believe in that's why i love publishing to specifically
1: that's an amazing answer i love that answer and i think that is the best way to end this interview in this podcast today and john you have so much insight you have so many great stories that you're representing and that you're writing yourself. I hope that even if people are not going to queer you, that they are paying attention to what you are helping shepherd into the world and supporting that. Thank you so much for being here. It has been a great pleasure and I just wish you all the best in all of your endeavors.
0: Oh gosh, thank you so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you and your amazing question. I very appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much for joining me in this conversation on Lit Match. You can find the full list of John's manuscript wishlist and the books discussed in this episode in the show notes. If you liked listening to my conversation with John and would like to hear more episodes with literary agents, please make sure to pass the show on and write a review. This helps me reach more writers ready for submission or who want to grow their writing craft. If you have any questions or recommendations for Letmatch, please email me at abigailkperry at gmail.com and I'll do my best to answer you. I hope you'll join me for the bonus episode to John's show and for next week's show. In the meantime, keep writing. I can't wait to hear when you sign with a literary agent who is the best match for your writing and business career and celebrate your book when it comes out.